what you're trying to do is increase the likelihood that you're successful in your pursuit. Because, um, and, and what I mean by that is raising your level of output or performance and minimizing that bandwidth of performance variability so that when you're in that range of likelihood of winning, and, and when we think about the more serial successful athletes, that's pretty much exactly what they do. They have a much more narrow bandwidth of performance. It's in the range of what's going to be required to deliver on their objective. And they prepare themselves to be able to deliver that output over and over again. Hello and welcome back to the Supporting Champions podcast. I'm Steve Ingham and if this is your first time tuning in then you're in for a treat. This is where we explore the often invisible aspects of achieving greatness and aspiring to perform whether in sport, business or life in general. We're not just about the headlines here, we're about the fine print, the strategies, the setbacks and the comebacks that make the journey worthwhile and we talk to experts from various fields, from coaches and scientists to leaders and, of course, performers. Those people who are out there trying. So it's not just about the performers. These are also about the people behind the scenes, the ones who are making champions what they are. This podcast isn't just for the elites or the top professionals. It's for anyone who believes in pushing their own boundaries, who believes in the power of progress over perfection. It's for anyone who's committed to improving to learning and to taking action. Whether you're a student, a professional or someone simply interested in personal growth, there's something here for you. So if you're ready to dig deeper and apply some real world insights to your own life, you're in the right place. The Supporting Champions podcast is sponsored by Athlete Now, a new venture I'm involved in. Now, Athlete Now is a new platform that's revolutionizing the connection between athletes and sports performance practitioners. We know that in the world of sports, the pursuit of peak performance is a constant journey and it can often feel like a bit of a solo mission. And nowadays, with the high tech landscape of wearables, nutrition, mental training, Navigating your path to excellence might seem overwhelming. An athlete now aims to demystify this process, offering you straightforward guidance. So athlete now or theathletenow.com, what's it all about? Well, if you're an athlete, then you know that the margin between good and great is influenced often by the expertise that's guiding you. But where can you find that expertise? Athlete Now offers the answer, granting you access to a curated selection of sports science, medicine and coaching professionals. And they're not just qualified, but they're rigorously vetted so that you can search by experience, specialism, location or accreditation to suit your needs. And Athlete Now is emerging as the solution for athletes seeking to push their limits and get the support they need. For the professional practitioners listening in, Athlete Now solves the age-old question, how do you stand out in a sea of talent? And the platform not only showcases your skills, but connects you directly with those who need them most. So whether you're a nutritionist whose strategies are fueling the champions, or a psychologist whose techniques are helping athletes to cope, strive and perform, 
Athlete Now is your stage. For athletes, the platform is free. And for practitioners, you can sign up half price for this first year. Only £10 for the foundation tier, which will allow you to get your profile started. Or upgrade for the professional tier, where you can get advanced features such as the jobs boards, community access and practice guides. And that's just for £50 per year. So Athlete Now is more than just a directory. It's a community committed to excellence ensuring athletes and sports professionals are perfectly paired to help support each other's ambitions together. So whether you're striving to compete or building a career, helping others do so, Athlete Now is really where it's at. So take a look at theathletenow.com. Today's guest is Ben Sporer, a Canadian sports physiologist who has recently written the book Output, and it puts a special focus on the nuances of performance, outcome and output. And it challenges us to refine our understanding of what truly underpins high performance and where we should put our focus. So Ben's book delves into a critical distinction, the difference between output, which we can control and we have some responsibility over, versus the outcome, which often lies beyond our grasp. And he argues that focusing on output, the expression of our efforts and the tangible metrics of performance is key to unlocking true potential. This concept, simple yet profound, reshapes how we think about achieving success in sports and beyond. What I really loved about this conversation is the way it challenges us to shift our focus from the often unpredictable outcomes in sport to the controllable aspects of our performance. It's a mindset that applies not just in sports, but in every area where performance matters. Well, welcome to the podcast, Ben. How are you today? Fantastic. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. Real real pleasure to be here and join you today. I'm surprised we haven't crossed paths a little bit more, given our backgrounds and, and so on. I, I'm sure that there is, um, we probably have, and we, I might, we might have forgotten about it, but um, <laughs> look, it was really interesting to see uh, a little spike on social media, a bit of interest around the this book that you've you've written. I'd love to to ask you a little bit about that. The book Output Optimizing Your Performance with Lessons Learned from Sport. But um before we kind of get into that specifically, can I just ask you just just to give us a little bit of a bio, a bit of a background, just let people who don't already know you uh familiarize themselves with you. Sure. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh I think it's you'll probably find it's a very parallel story to yourself, I think, from what I understand your background. Um, a physiologist by training, uh, got into Olympic sport in the early 2000s, late 90s, around that window of time. Um, started working as a applied physiologist and really, I think, I became the first full-time, one of the first full-time paid physiologists to work in sport in Canada. Um, we hadn't had a really a system set up at that point uh, in Canada, and we're there was an institute called Pacific Sport um, Institute, which was a localized. It was a legacy from the Commonwealth Games that occurred in Victoria and British Columbia, uh, and they were trying to transition to create more of a institute model similar towards the AIS or which is now the EIS as well. And um, I got hired on full time to work with them, and fortunately, some of the funding model fell apart and so I, I stayed on working with cycling and triathlon through that time three 
timeframe leading up to 2004. And at the same time across Canada, there was a there was a variety of other institutes that were either supporting athletes in Calgary and Montreal. Um, and, and shortly after Vancouver was awarded the 2010 Olympics, uh, we really pushed into with a new um, organization called Own the Podium. Um, we pushed into creating more of a systematic approach to supporting sport. And I got into that system really early. Um, I, I was working a lot in endurance sport with cycling, triathlon, um, helped with a good mentor of mine, the late Gord Sleevert, uh, in helping build a system in Vancouver uh, and Victoria, um, for, which now is the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific. Uh, I, I spent a lot of years, uh, just over a decade with that organization in really helping to push research and innovation into the sporting space and applying that in the field. Um, and it was, like I say, it was pretty new in Canada at the time. So a lot of learned lessons on that, um, sort of call it the cutting your teeth as a, as a country. Make your mistakes. With, <laughs> yeah, making a lot of mistakes. And I, I read, I read, I read your book uh, and I remember the first chapter, I was like, I could have basically written the same story with a different okay. athlete. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the, I think there's a little bit of rawness about that, isn't there? I mean, I'm, I want to, I want to ask yeah. you what you've experienced over time. But finish your bio, and I'll get into some of that if that's okay. Yeah, sure. And so I, I worked quite a bit in. Um, I did my uh, doctorate at UBC under Don McKenzie, who was a sports medicine PhD. So I really got a good lens on looking at sport from two different angles um a medical side as well as an applied sports side i did my master's degree with howie wenger at university of victoria working on some interference work between aerobic and strength training and i did an honors degree earlier on in specifically working on strength um, with dr dave Doherty at university of victoria so i've come from this background that shaped me across different paradigms from a physiology starting space you know really working a lot in the strength and conditioning space moving into the more medical space um, and got a lot into anti-doping space, working with a lot with water through my doctoral work. Um, and then at the same time, I was working a lot in sport. And as we sort of progressed through, you know, 2010, 2011, and as you would know, and most people that work in sport, it can be a very long haul. Um, we had young kids at the time. Uh, and I made a decision, or our family made a decision to not travel as much. Um, it was a really tough decision to sort of move away from the institute model and uh, still work with national teams, um, leading and primarily snowboard. I, I, in 2007, I got really focused, um, brought into snowboard on some top secret projects leading into 2010 games. And amongst those projects was really diving into the, the warm up space in all winter sports. So as part of one of these top secret projects, we went across freestyle skiing, snowboard, um, some of the Nordics events. We were really looking at how do we optimize warm up and preparation. Um, we did some analysis across most international competitions and a variety of those events, watching other countries, what they were doing, really dove into a lot of this uh, early stage aspects around preheating. Um, passive heating garments and prior to 2012. I know London came out, UK came out with it in 2012, but we were doing a lot of that in 2010 um, on the winter side. Um, and in that process, started to lead this sports science, sports medicine initiative with snowboard. 
which was a different space for me. So it gave me some experiences working in a um, with multiple disciplines. We had style disciplines, we had speed disciplines um, in parallel giant slalom, and we also had a half pipe. We had slope style coming in 2014. So uh, it sort of created a uh, background for me that was, you know, looking at sports that were transitioning from, you know, in snowboard, we had multiple transitions from um, more of a professional independent model to an Olympic model. Um, and so through that time, I really started to drive programs and working on building teams around performance support. And I moved into a director of sports science, sports medicine role with with Canadian snowboard team. And my my role then was really thinking about how do we prep for performance as a whole, a really integrated model. How do we get the different pieces to work alongside and with each other as opposed to in silos? Uh, and so that really helped shape a lot of my background um, and how I moved forward around really becoming more of a performance strategy approach as opposed to just physiology. Um, still do a lot of physiology. Uh, probably around 2016, um, 2018, I, I moved more away from Olympic sport um, because I'd started to see this transition that was happening around really trying to build high-performance teams that supported sport and athletes from an integrated model. Um, that performance was more than just, you know, a coach over here and then send it to a uh, a strength coach over here, a physiologist or a psychologist, that it was an integrated output that resulted in delivering and executing on a task that was required to achieve an objective. Um, around that time, I also had uh, probably in, you know, 2010, 2012 timeframe, I had people coming up to me from the non-sport world who had really high sport performance goals. Um, you know, I think it was a global phenomenon, the maybe late 2000, early, like around 2010, just before 2010, where a lot of executives were really getting into cycling. And I had been working in cycling for a long time. And so they were had these these goals of achieving what I would say were pretty, you know, um, ambitious goals of competing at a high level as a cyclist, but also, you know, running businesses and, you know, raising families. Um, and so one of the things I was approached on was how how do how does what we do with elite athletes apply to them? So it was a really interesting time because it was you were seeing a lot I was seeing a lot of parallels. I was seeing a um a lot of people trying to achieve a high level of performance, but just different aspects of um, what made up that performance. And it, it didn't really seem that different to me than it did from a, an elite athlete. So I, over the last probably 10 years, I've really branched out a bit more to be working across um, business space, uh, personal performance space, while at the same time working more in professional sport. So I've, I've moved into the professional sport realm and helping organizations and teams uh, build performance strategies similar to what I was doing in the Olympic sport. Oh, re really parallel. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, just just communicating across a, a different universe or just a different uh, across the ocean. There, um, yeah. I'm, I'm interested to hear a little bit about that 
what you what you do now and that mix and that's partly driven by my own curiosity as to how how really parallel is this however can i just ask you this is a difficult question necessarily but it's it's thinking about over that stretch of time at near 30 years worth of of view of of us trying to take scientific concepts and apply them for people who are chasing those those goals those outcomes as we might term it in your book what what's your observation about how the system that you've been immersed in the canadian system has changed over that time and what the what the big things are and that's a big question yeah so the canadian system on the olympic level per se is, uh, yeah. is that what you're really referring to well first i'd say um we have a system now where we didn't have a system before. I think that's one of the biggest things. Um, uh, you know, when I started working in Olympic sport, like I said, it was probably one of the first full-time paid physiologists to work with Olympic sport. And maybe there was, outside of coaches, you know, and, and some therapists that were on contract here or there, there weren't that many people that were full-time paid to actually support sport. Um, and there was quite often what happened to attached to university, you know, an exercise physiology prof would, would provide some testing and some feedback to the coaches, maybe some consulting here and there. And I think what's happened with the 2010 Olympics, when we, when, when that was awarded, there was a, a big, um, push to try to raise the game. Uh, and I think with that came a lot of learnings, um, you know, there's an influx of money. There's a short time frame, so a lot of things get just put on teams and NSOs um, and athletes and coaches. And I think one of the biggest learnings that came from that, from my perspective, and I think the sports system learned really well from it, was you can be detrimental by doing too much too soon. Uh, and so we went from a, a state of not really a lot of support to a lot of support. Uh, and in some situations, that can create a bit of a distraction, um, getting away from the fundamentals. Um, and I think that over time, people started to realize, and myself included, that you know sometimes when you put too much into a space that's not ready for it, it's it's better actually to go slow than to go fast. So is that, can I just and, ask you about that specifically? Yeah, is that, for sure. Is that an example, say, for example, um, if, if the swim coach hasn't necessarily got a deeper understanding of technique and they might be more focused on the training side of things in terms of the physiology of training, that maybe it's not the right time to put a biomechanist in place. And it's better to put that service in when they're ready as opposed to, that's the type of blend of services we should have. So let's put it in place. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, it actually came up a, a couple of weeks ago when I was with Ken and we were speaking. This is Ken Van Summer. We heard from our, Ken Van Summer, our yeah, pre-conversation. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, the concept was brought was the right person in the right role. And I added the right time to that. And I think there, there's a right time to in, introduce different aspects of support um, and even the right person might change over time depending on the need and so I think you know in your example there is that 
maybe the person that's required for that coach is at a very simple, it doesn't need to be a very detailed level of biomechanistic analysis. It might not be someone that's an expert specifically in swimming, but it might be someone that has a general understanding of how the body functions in levers and principles to help the coach better understand how a technique might impact the output of that athlete. Um, however, when you if you put someone in that role too early, you actually put at risk the ability for that coach to then take that on with a long-term vision. And then sometimes if that if there's that conflict or and I don't conflict's probably not the right word, but in incompatibility. Yeah. Um, you you run the risk of potentially shaping the perspective of that coach or that athlete from future integration. Uh, and I've seen this happen a lot. Like um, I'd say in professional sport in North America, we, we saw a big influx of high performance director roles uh, dropping into these um, you know, professional sports teams across North America about 10 years ago. Um, and the teams weren't ready for them. The coaches and the athletes weren't ready for a different level of support. And what happens is, uh, and sometimes the right person isn't the right knowing how to massage that relationship. And so there becomes this almost like a, a jaded experience of what it could provide because it didn't provide a solution at that time. And, and then that stops that or per, it sort of almost encourages a, a continued non like integration of that support down the road because of based on past experiences. Yeah, there's reputational damage there, isn't there, in that sense of yeah, absolutely of, of that pressure to to appoint somebody to a role. You go out to advert. Perhaps that there's not um, the people that you think are great, but you think they're okay, and you have a pressure to fill a role. It goes wrong. Get the phone call. That's the end of that. Yeah. And then now you're trying to catch up. You're trying to over explain you're trying to over justify as opposed to a sport or a system or an athlete group or chasing you we need this we've got our identifiable problem and we need the, that type of solution yeah, yeah and i think that that's where i would say you know going back to your original question is that's where i think um canada's grown a lot over the last 25 years is learning to uh work on an integrated model as opposed to putting a lot onto teams and coaches and sports to say, Hey, you need to do all this to become a high performance program. Well, I, I would often laugh because you know I'm looking at a coach who's, you know, won multiple world championships with multiple different athletes and Olympic medals. And you're trying to say, you need to do all this to become a high performance program. Well, they're already high performers. It's more the perspective I think is, how do we take what you're currently doing and learn from what you're currently doing and maybe tweak, um, facilitate other aspects to then move into that next space of performance where you get a much more sustainable performance model down the road. And we're sort of leaping into some of the content of your book, just sort of towards the back end, you're talking about kind of creating your support team. Um, and, that, that are, you, are you writing that specifically about your support team as you as a performer or if you were assembling a support team within a sport or an athlete? That's a great question. I actually, it's a bit of both, to be honest with you. Like um, the book's written to anybody who's trying to drive 
performance, whether it be on an individual level or you're leading a team to help support, you know, a performance of a, a, a multiple people. Um, I think there's definite overlap between the two. Uh, and really what, what I wrote in that section was helping people try, trying to help people understand the importance of the right person in the right role at the right time. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the principles I write in that, in that section relate to my experiences working with individual athletes, or if, you know, we were supporting a snowboard cross team, who are the people we put around that team or a cycling team. But they also relate to when I'm building a team. So my current role um, is with the Wanker Whitecaps at the MLS football club, soccer in North America. But um, a lot of those same principles are key in building the team, which is composed of not just, you know, sport med docs or physios. It's the video analysts. It's our data team. It's our coaching staff. It's our developmental coaching staff. How do all these people fit together? Um, and what are the attributes we need at the right place or in the right role at the right time? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's, it's, I think it's one of those sort of reflections of of the different types of approaches I've taken over the over time when I'm assembling or directing or uh, recruiting to a team within sport. I have a I have a very particular lens that you've got to get on with people. You've got to be able to create relationships. And that comes out heavily in your in your uh, book, the, the pyramid, pyramid around that sort of personality. We, we've termed it over the time, character and attitude. And consistently it comes out as, as required. Um, we've just done a, a really big piece of survey work, Jamie Pringle and I, and I was going through the results this morning with him. And academics industry, students, although we've got a small population of students, they all recognize that's the top characteristic. Um, I've got that particular perspective. And then I've got, I've got experience of being a coach. I've got an experience of running a business and contracting people. And I've, I've probably got a slightly different perspective in terms of I just need to know you can perform. <laughs> um, I can I can probably <laughs> cope with a little bit of personality disruption as long as I know you know what I need. And, and totally. that is interesting because it feeds back to, I think, potentially that no-nonsense approach potentially that I would like if I was an athlete or a coach where it is a case of, Rapport is important. Personality is important. But please, you have to switch on at some point and start to think about producing. Show me the right direction. Show me you've got experience. Show me you have some expertise. And so I think the depth of relationship, the, the type of relationship, um, it's just made me think very differently about what I would like <laughs> Versus what I'm thinking, oh, maybe we should be acting like this way for other people yeah. as a service provider and as a service receiver. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that um, I, I try to emphasize that in the aspect of those top two levels of that pyramid, which you're talking about education and yes. experience. And, and experience is 
And so I, I bring that back to the right person in the right right at the right time in the right role. Um, and so there may be one or two of those people that as a practitioner, I will say, and, and working in sport and leading teams uh, at Olympics as well, I need to know that you can deliver. Like that's in that situation. I can't have just someone who's got a great personality can build relationships. I need you to be able to deliver X. And I think that that's where being really clear about what it is you need from your practitioners or your support personnel is really important. As a coach, you need to have someone. I, I think we both probably worked with lots of coaches and you even as a coach, as you described, is that they are no not Some coaches are very no-nonsense. I need X from you right now and please deliver it. And you have to be able to deliver. You have to be able to perform. You know, I was talking with Julian Brisebois. He's uh, the GM of the uh, Tampa Bay Lightning. He's been one of the most successful teams um, in the NHL in the last decade, or last eight years at least. Um, and one of the things he said, which I think described it so well, is that you have to be you have to be a wolf to lead a wolf pack. Um, and it, it really is like if you want to lead high performers and you want to be in that mix at the moment, you also have to be a high performer yourself. Um, and I think that describes a little bit about what you're talking about, that there's times when if we're going to ask coaches and we're going to ask athletes to be able to perform on demand, we have to be able to deliver on demand too across the support structure. Yeah, fascinating. We got, I could probably go off on a complete tangent on that, but I've got one last little question that relates to your bio. Is Are, are you still a practitioner? Because I still dabble as a physiologist, and I think I've had this sort of pulse of periods of time where I've, I've, I've drifted right away from it, strategic level, boardroom discussions, and then I've gone, actually, you know what? I still want to get involved. I still want to help people. And the knock on the door, I think, yeah, you know what? I'm still going to do it. So I'm, I'm intrigued to know if you're – operating with businesses, it's business strategy, performance strategy. Do you still get down and dirty and download heart rate monitors? Absolutely. So, I, <laughs> of course, because I, I love it. Right? I've got well, a yeah, brother. Course, I found so. a brother today. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I actually feel so blessed. I, I feel really lucky. I've got a great balance across the three. And so um, – you know, I do do a lot of uh, working on strategy with sport organizations. Um, I do some work with B210 on the strategic side. For those that don't know, B210 is a pr private donor, funder of Olympic sport in Canada. Um, and even within that strategy side, I work with B210. I actually do files with athletes. So I work as a physiologist or a performance planner, um, looking at their calendar per week, sequencing, looking at files, talking about recovery strategies. So I do get down and dirty with that. Um, I still work with individual athletes that contract privately with me. So I would say I'm not necessarily a coach per se. They all have technical coaches, but I'd be more of a, a physiologist slash performance manager for them, depending on what their needs are. Um, and then the, the third piece that I have in there is, you know, when I work with an organization like the Whitecaps is really building that team. Like I'm not so much in the day to day with the athletes on the field. I see them all pretty much every day, but I'm not the practitioner doing it per se is where I'm sort of overseeing. How does that function as a unit? How does our support drive performance at the club? Yeah. So okay. yeah, I do love to get down and dirty still. 
You do, you do. You still pour over the information, yeah. Let, let's talk about your book a bit. Um, output. Sure. I probably don't need to ask you what it's about, do I? It's about output, isn't it? It's about output, one hundred percent. Yeah. And yeah. and it's about reason. Yeah. What was driving that for you? So so I, I here's my summary of what I think you've written, and obviously there's some some layers to that about how you would go about that. You know what what other things you need to be thinking about whilst you're whilst you're trying to develop performance, but in essence, if you are striving, if you are looking to improve performance, that you've also you've got to recognize output, what actually happens rather than necessarily how that is judged by the external world, the outcome, as long alongside performance. So the steps that you put in place, the process that leads up to that, what does that yield as an output before you then start looking at the leaderboard of to where you ended up in comparison to others. And is my is my assumption that you are trying to give adequate or perhaps unrecognized previously attention to the word output? Yeah, I think that that sums it up beautifully. Uh, I um, I think over the years, and it probably first came to light for me after the Beijing games in 2008, like the concept and how I started thinking about supporting athletes to achieve their objectives is, um, and just seeing how we had some athletes who in cycling performed incredibly well. Like they, they had done things that, um, what I would say was they maximized their output. They actually, max- yeah, they didn't win a medal. That's because the uh, Brits turned up on force. Well, they weren't really a mountain biking, so it was okay. <laughs> you could have won. <laughs> and, and and road cycling was not men's road cycling. So yeah, I mean, we had an athlete swimming tough who um, was a time trialist, and he finished seventh. But you know, here was an athlete who was really not—he was known a little bit, but not really. But his ability to deliver on demand um, in a field that was pretty high caliber feel uh and then again Catherine pendrel who delivered on demand in the mountain bike and finished fourth and would have won a medal had it not been for a mechanical in the last you know quarter lap um both of those athletes delivered at such a high level uh and continued on from that stage to go on to higher levels world champion and uh, in Catherine and the um a silver medal at uh, time trials for Swain at World Championships um, and great pro career. Um, had they been judged on their outcomes from a sense of like relative to medals, um, I think we would have lost a lot in the aspects of how they actually performed and they were able to deliver and how their preparation led to that great performance. Um, which, and performance is interesting, you know, like, I think if you think about the definition of what performance is, it's it's actually what we do. It's it's what we do in the moment of competition. It's not actually the outcome. It's it's that, and so that's where the concept of output really drove home for me. Is that what is the output that we're actually able to deliver? What's expected from our preparation, and are we able to deliver at that? And so when I think about you know, performance in a whole and going back to this concept of achieving your objectives, if your objective is to be a world champion, 
you need to be really clear on what's required to deliver that. What is the output that's required of you? Not the output that's required of athlete X, but what's required of you? Because um, we've all experienced this at times, occasionally in different fields. There's phenomenal athletes that just are at the right time. They're at the same time as you, and you will never, there's a good chance you will never actually beat that athlete just on a genetic makeup. Um, they're just so dominant in their field. Uh, and you have to understand what's required of you to deliver on your objective as opposed to what this athlete might deliver on. And once, once you reframe that, what I found is that individuals, athletes, coaches, it's much easier and tangible to say, okay, this is where I am. This is the output that's required for me to be successful. And one thing that's really important, and you'll know this too, and most, most, many of the listeners will probably understand this concept, is that what you're trying to do is increase the likelihood that you're successful in your pursuit. Because... Um, and, and what I mean by that is raising your level of output or performance and minimizing that bandwidth of performance variability so that when you're in that range of likelihood of winning, and, and when we think about the more serial successful athletes, that's pretty much exactly what they do. They have a much more narrow bandwidth of performance. It's in the range of what's going to be required to deliver on their objective. And they prepare themselves to be able to deliver that output over and over again. Well, that, that, there's two two of those truisms that I was just going to flag, and you've flagged one, and that's the probabilities of success. Yeah. If you're in a linear, single lane, no turns race, there's it's probably going to be a form-based sport that if you can row, ride, cycle, kayak at the speed that you know you can – then there's a probability factor there. You might yeah. win, you might not. If you are consistently rowing, cycling, kayaking at that given speed, and that's good enough to win a gold medal, then there's a high probability. But it's also recognizing that that's not always a certainty. Something can go wrong. You've mentioned a mechanical for an athlete there. But it's also recognizing that most athletes lose and they don't win, <laughs> you know, yeah. the hundred entrants, there will be one winner. The rugby world cups just, just occurred and there's only one winning team um, at the end of it. But you, so you've still got to be able to review that output or the performance. You've still got to be able to look at, at did you perform in the way that you intended to regardless and have a degree of separation to that yeah exactly and i think that you know um and i think one of the definers is is that when we when we work with athletes and we work with people is um really being clear on this sense of control like you can control your preparation you can control your output in a moment um and that's something that i think individuals connect with a lot what you can't control, we like to think we can, is you can't control the outcome. Um, and and that's, uh, I know people may disagree with me on that, and that's okay, but there are things that are outside of your control in an outcome-based com perspective that may or may not influence the outcome <clears throat> that you have no control over. 
So for example, we, we roll into an event and it's track cycling and there's an athlete that just can put out more power than you. You have no control whether that athlete's more better prepared. You can say, oh, I need to get better. Well, you're now relating to your output, but you, that athlete might also get better. So you may do everything you can along the way. You've delivered time and time again. And if we measure that on your output, that's relative. And there's a big thing that's important here to understand is that we have to measure performance on the output, but we have to have a realistic measure of performance based on the expectations of the profile that we're thinking about. So athlete X, I can't expect athlete X to push 450 watts for, you know, 25 minutes if they've only ever pushed 420. It's an unrealistic expectation. If their top is 420 and we say they hit 421, incredible. Like they've done a very good job of delivering on their output, their maximal output on demand. And maybe we expect it might be a little bit higher. But my expectation can't be that they're going to push 450. That's an unrealistic expectation. And there's a time frame to those expectations that might be right now. I can't. But, you know, we're going to try to improve your output to be able to do 450 watts. So we might do that over a year or two years. But then if we get to that space and now the benchmark has changed because an opposing athlete is now 470 is what's going to be required. It doesn't mean you're not a high performer in my mind. You haven't optimized your performance because you have. You've delivered on your output and you've done everything to prepare yourself for that output. I think the other thing I'll just add on that, Steve, if I can, is that um, uh, this concept of saying, well, you just set your standards low and you're sort of, you know, you're setting your standard a little bit lower. And, and I, I don't agree with that because I think when you set your, when you evaluate your performance clearly on the expectations of the profile, whether it be a team, an individual athlete, and you don't achieve the objective, what it does is it clearly articulates back to you that you have not evaluated what the output is that's required properly. And I think it's really important to identify that on a regular basis. And quite often we, and maybe in your experiences, but what I've found is um, we think X is required to achieve our objective, or we'll hear coaches say, this is what we need to, yet they don't have success. Um, and it's, it's those moments, if that's what required and you delivered on that, you know, desired output that you need to do and you don't have success, well, you need to rethink your evaluation of what's required. It, it leads a natural, it, it provides a natural um, transition to that next stage of, okay, what's the next evolution of where we need to be? It's a, it's a really interesting concept because I think that, I, I, I don't know if this is a narcissistic thing or not, but I was just re-listening to one of our podcast episodes because <laughs> I found it such a fascinating topic. Is is Christian Swan based over in Australia? He's a he's a Brit, Irish actually, but and he's he's talking about goals, and it was such a rich conversation that I had to go back to it because what was interesting about those specific goals that you've just mentioned that I want to be world champion, um, that they are all, you're always behind that <laughs> until you're there. You're, it's always a not there yet, not there yet, not there yet experience. So it's a, it can be quite demoralizing. 
And this notion of non-specific goals or vague goals, as he terms it, and we have an interesting discussion about that, which is do do better than yesterday. Try try and be your best today, which feels a little bit. I don't know how this lands with you, but a little bit more oriented to to output. That that sense of I'm making progress, and you can then get into some discussions about the rates of progress and and so yeah, on. Yeah, for sure. But if you're always constantly judging yourself, uh, how is it you phrased it in the book? The, your definition of outcome, the way things turn out. Um, yeah. And 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 but that's that is very much a case of weighing up everything that happened on the day as opposed to how did I get on. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think it's um, he's. I would agree with him, and in, in how he's approaching that is that. It's a different way of phrasing it, um, but I think they are very aligned. Um, one of the things I think that we can, and I would even say the serial performer. So I, even one question I would have is, so when you do become world champion, now your goal is different. Your goal is not to become world champion. Your goal is to stay world champion, maybe, right? And that, and you often see that that will play a bit of, that will be difficult for some people because it gives them a different lens on how they have to maintain that status. Um, but I think when you focus on whatever your objective is, if you focus on what's required to achieve that, it makes it much more tangible for you in control of what you're trying to do. And so then when you evaluate your performance and you're evaluating on that, you're actually now saying, well, this is what I was really trying to deliver. This is the output I was trying to deliver. And you can apply this concept. Um, and what, I've, what I found for me like working in team sport, you can apply this concept to a team's perspective. Like, you know, what's our required output of our team to achieve X? You know, okay, great. This is what we need. We need to play. This is our strategy and how we're going to do it. We need, you know, 11 players on the pitch to do these different various things. What's required of player one? What's required of player two? And at each level, you can say, what are the required outputs? And if you are able to clearly articulate that, and this is a this is something I think that we, uh, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, where I often see errors is probably too strong a word, or uh, misalignment maybe is a better word. Is clearly articulating what's actually required uh, and spending the time up front to do that and then evaluating yourself or your team or your roster against that. And do you have the capabilities? And then being honest about whether or not you actually are able to put, go from A to B. And what are, the, what are the strategies that you as an individual or as a team need to do to get to achieve that output? That time, when that time's spent up front, what I see typically, and sometimes coaches do this just inherently, it's just how they think. Um, high performers who are, I call them independents, you know, these people who you know, work outside the system, but they just constantly achieve success or they've just done it on their own without a lot. They're maybe one coach. They inherently do this process. They understand what's required of them to get to A. They don't focus on a bunch of other things that other people may be doing. And I think that that step early on in that dissecting of your objective and what's the output required to, 
to deliver that and then the honesty of evaluating yourself against it helps set you up for success to then drive to try to push and improve your profile to deliver on that output and your preparation. And so I, I, I want to just recognize your recipe example in a moment, if you could give that, but you know, <laughs> I, I wonder if there's, um, I wonder if there's a, just for our listeners for, to, to go through, do you have those specific definitions to hand around performance outcome and output? Yeah, so outcome is what happens at the end. Outcome is the, the end result. It's a, it's, it's whether you're in sport, business, it's what is, the, what were you trying to achieve? And then what was the end result? Okay, so it is based on things that you're under your control. Your output is how you actually performed. So meaning output is what you have control in. It's related to your preparation. It's related to your ability to deliver on demand. Um, and no matter what you do, it may influence the outcome. So that's an important thing. We are, it clearly is attached to outcome, but it's not the only thing that influences outcome. And that's a big distinction. Um, and then performance, if I say performance, performance is actually the act of executing on the steps that you're trying to do to achieve your your objective or deliver your output. So we talk about performance as an outcome, but performance, if you look at the definition of performance, is it's the act of doing specific tasks to achieve an objective. And it may be acting, it may be, you know, somebody says that was a great performance by that actor. Well, they're actually talking about what the what the actor did on stage or in the movie. Um, it's how they delivered. It's their output. It's not whether the movie mm. won awards. It's not whether the actor won, you know, best actor award. The the actor has an amazing performance. They delivered an incredible output that then allowed you to say this was a great movie or this was a great performance by them by that actor. Mm, yeah, nice. Okay, so give us the give us your cake recipe example. Yeah, so I mean, I, it's having been a while since I read that example. But I, well, I think I'll it's a nice you, one the, in, the in the sense of, of just being able to separate these out. And the reason I'm doing this is because yeah. what you have presented in your book around making the case for us to listen, learn, look, recognize the importance of output is that it just strikes me that it's it's not present enough in our conversations, prospective, retrospective review. And so a nice metaphor uh, could, could really help. Yeah, sure. So I would say that between process out, output and outcome, um, if we were to bake a cake, a chocolate cake, and I talk about this in the book, and I, I probably won't get all the pieces of it because it's, it's a fairly long example in the book, but... The concept about baking a cake is we'd all agree that there's probably 100 different recipes for chocolate cake. Um, the process is the steps of measuring the flour, mixing, how you mix the aspects of the cake together, whether you set the oven at the right temperature. And for those that are bakers that are listening to us or chefs, please ignore my... I apologize for my references if they're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I am not a baker. There's flour all over the floor. uh, I forgot we have a need to go on. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. 
but the process is the steps that you're taking to do that. Okay. Um, and it might be the recipe. Part of it might be the recipe. You know, in sport, we use different tactics. So you might use a different recipe or a different approach to mixing the ingredients. Um, so the process is those steps. The output would be you could use the same recipe. You and I could use the same recipe. And we follow the same process. And our cakes might turn out very different. Right? So we followed the process differently. But my output of using that process and your output of using that process might have produced a different cake. Right? So ultimately, in that in that essence, is it may be because I practice it more or I've learned that I have a different taste or a different feel for when ingredients are mixed properly or whatever the reason is. It might be that I've left something in the oven. Uh. <laughs> yeah, or, or I, you forgot to think it out, right? <laughs> yeah, and so our outputs would be different, right? And if you and I were entering a contest to say, well, who's going to base, bake the best chocolate cake? Now, I might say we could both go into it and just go at it and – one of us might win, but the outcome would be who won. So what, what you might be really proud to say that you built a cake or you made a cake having never even touched a kitchen before, never been into a kitchen, and you made a cake that came out and it looked like chocolate cake, it tastes like chocolate cake, but it wasn't quite as good as mine, where I was actually been practicing and practicing, practicing, and I produced an output that was, you know, a cake that look like chocolate cake, it tastes like chocolate cake, but I like, some people like mine much better, right? Now, I prepared really, really hard, practiced to try to deliver an output. I delivered the exact output I wanted, right? And so it was a very good cake. Now, let's say a third person enters our conversation, and it's a world-class chef, like it's late entry into the cake contest, and we didn't know that, and they put it out, and they deliver a cake that is above and beyond. Like it just is over the top. Now, I I worked hard at my cake. I delivered probably the best cake I've ever made. It looked good, tasted great, but it was not at the level of this other chef who's done years and years of training. And so that cake wins. Now, my output was my cake, which was an extra, which was an incredible chocolate cake. However, I may have lost the contest because this other person who came in who had a completely different experience building cakes, who delivered on some of the attributes that a judge might have actually appreciated much more than what I didn't really pay attention to what the judges really wanted. So maybe I didn't know the output that was required to deliver the winning cake. So those are things that were, even though I executed, I had a great performance, I still didn't get the outcome I wanted. Yeah. Love it. Love it. It it's um it, it it tidies up the example um in the sense that you can control as much as you can control. You can put the right steps in. Um so that that's great. So can I jump ahead a little bit? Because what sure. really caught my eye in in your book was uh, a long list of qualities, characteristics that you'd spot with a in a high performer and if i if i read them out a little bit and it'd be great just to hear a little bit about your background thinking either research or how you assembled the list because i think it was um 
because I think it's quite compelling. And I should preface this before I get into any of these is that this obviously requires dedication, hard work to, to pour in. And it, it, it's interesting. You all, I was reading it thinking, ah, yeah, but yeah. Uh, and then you recognize a point, which was these high performance can exist without all of these. You can get yeah. there. So if I go through the list, uh, they have a growth mindset. They are competitive. They are focused, disciplined, and willing to do the work. They control what they can control. They are strategic in their approach. They put themselves in a culture that supports high performance. That was what I thought. I've seen high performance happen without that. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah, set, 100%. they set clear objectives and are purposeful in what they do. They understand that preparation is key. So those are eight characteristics. So talk, talk me through how the origins of that list and, and your observations around that. Yeah, so that origin of that list came from, honestly, it came from the experiences and the, I, the pieces I've identified across the spectrums of different people I've worked with. Um, it came from reading leadership books. It came from talking to people from business, uh, um, working with different collaborators around leadership. And really sort of teasing out some of those similarities that I've seen in sport, uh, whether it be great coaches, whether it be coaches who are serial, like winning coaches. And so obviously they don't get on the pitch or they don't get into the competition space and do the sports. So they surround themselves with great athletes, and um, but they know how to deliver um, performances on demand and help athletes get to that space. So the genesis of that list was really from the experiences and things that just kept repeating themselves every time I saw athletes or executives or coaches who were high performers. Um, the piece I say at the end, and I'm glad you brought that up because it's really important to stress that if you don't have all these, it doesn't mean you can't be a high performer, but you better have a, a, quite a few of them. And it, and it doesn't mean you have them in every aspect of your life at every single moment is, you know, there's people who are high performers and I'll, I'll use an example of, let's say there's an athlete who's, especially in team sport, this could be really, you can see an athlete who makes it to the top level of their sport. Um, and I'd say, let's use football as an example. There are numerous stories of athletes who have, incredible skill and talent um, who make it to the highest level yet they don't have a growth mindset <laughs> or because they're just so dominant in one of these two or three different areas. Um, but what I would say is that have they limited their ability to be a higher performer or to achieve a higher level of performance? So I think that that's a that's an important distinction. Is not every athlete has ever or every high performer has every one of these aspects, but these are the traits that are common and consistent across them. Um, and I think there's other things to say. Like for example, the question you said around uh, seeing performance without surrounding themselves with a high performance culture. Yeah, I've seen it as well. Um, but what I've also seen in those scenarios, and I would be interested to hear your thoughts on it is when there's an odd high performance culture, um, what you typically see in the serial high performers, if they stay in that culture, is they insulate themselves from it. 
They, they work directly with a singular coach. They avoid a lot. They stay out of a lot of the excess stuff. They don't come distracted by the lack of a high performance culture. They will work within a realm or they'll eventually leave and do provide their own sort of sub, you know, subculture within that larger culture. Um, and I think the thing about the high performance culture, which I, I, um, I want to stress is like, it, culture is a funny thing. Like it can be incredibly powerful and it can destroy an incredible strategy. If you have a really good strategy, it can destroy a strategy if it's incredibly toxic, but you can have a moderate run of the mill culture and have some really high performers within that culture and a team, a little small insular team, and they can deliver on really high performances because they've got, it's not a necessarily a toxic piece that's pulling away or t- taking away from their abilities to deliver as a unit. Mm. I think you see that in organizations all the time. You might have one, the culture of an organization might be, you know, not, not the greatest. Um, yet you've got little pockets or groups that are exceeding and, and doing really well. And they wonder, well, why is this group doing so well? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's certainly from, uh, what I can observe is that the culture augments the frequency of high performing. And so yeah. it's not so much, um, it, it doesn't, it, it stops it from happening if it's not there, as you, as you say. And I think insulating is a, is a great word actually too, that people are shrewd enough that they start. So you, you're, I, the word I use is tenacious. Um, yeah. What's the word you've got there? Strategic, um, purposeful. Relentless. So that there is that, that there's that sort of tactical aspect of I'm going to shift because I'm not getting what I need. Whereas I think that um, I think that a culture can can just mean that more people who wouldn't necessarily be performing can perform, and so it's right. it stops a lot of that passivity. And that learned helplessness, checking out, I'm not going to bother, that discretionary effort, that that not necessarily high performance per se, but the better than expected, the plus one. And that's where I yeah. think the these I've got a similar set of list of, of qualities. There's a couple of differences that I, I don't I share them carefully and almost talk them about as a graphic equalizer that people can tune up one dial down the other because being diligent and setting goals and rah, all the time, it can be, it can be fatiguing for not only for people who are at the top of their game, but fatiguing for everyone around them. And there's always, always a cost to gunning for it all the time. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's a really important pace to emphasize is like, you know, we talk about integration in the book and the concept of really understanding like, um, sometimes you might be dialing this one like just a little, but you might be spending a lot of energy over here because, you know, we talk about the concept of net performance impact, but like which is going to have the bigger impact at the end of the day? And I would even say, and I think I, I use an example, if, if understanding context is so important, uh, individual context. So if you have a, a program that's super detail-oriented, and you've got to follow this to a T and that's not who you are as a person. Like, you know, example, same, similar setting goals. 
Like if you have to follow these goals and measure KPIs and, and everything's dialed, 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 it can be mentally exhausting for individuals. And what's the net performance impact of trying to get someone to work in this space? Um, while at the same time, you know, it, it takes away from their ability to be creative, to, to be able to be dynamic and flexible and have energy for what they actually want to do, have the focus and the drive to say, I'm excited about coming to work on this because I'm just bogged down by all this. I think a good example that you, um, again, I, I, I like the, the tone that you've taken around marginal gains. And I think that's, so, so in summary, get the fundamentals right first before you start tackling the marginal gains. And my commentary to this for anyone who listens, people at the bus stop, down at the swimming bars, or people I actually consult with, is marginal gains started from thinking about how do we push the crank harder on the bike and how do we cut down aerodynamic drag? Those two yeah. things are our priority. And then we will get sophisticated about the things that improve both of those. And then it started to descend into small things, 100 things, yeah. 1% better. Yeah. <laughs> it did not start thinking about sock length to start off with. It started with dealing with the big things to start. Um, yes. Get those fundamentals and they're boring and they, they can be monotonous because you're, you're repeating the same messages over and over and over rather than the shiny beetroot juice stuff. It's, yeah. it's getting those qualities right first. And I think, I think if people can have clarity around that, just focusing on a couple of things and doing some of those things really well, that's going to give you 95% return probably anyway, rather than chasing around and being an expert project manager in all of the other hundred things that we've got to try and keep moving and probably not doing those very well and not sure of what, about whether they have an effect. But, oh, because marginal gains, it must be all right. Yeah, yeah look, and the, the, I love the concept of marginal gains. I, I think it's an incredible approach when used properly. Uh, I think it it um, is that, as you just summarized it there, is that people have spent time on marginal gains without focusing on the fundamentals. And, and, and the other thing I'll say is, you know, unless you're talking about the elite of the elite in any profession who are already at the razor's edge, like it's, it is marginal gain. The vast majority of people who will read this book or listen to your podcast, they're, they're typically below, they're a greater depth below their top performance bandwidth, whatever that, whatever that might be. So they may be operating at 85% of their optimal performance benefit. They might be 60, they might, depending on what it is. The jumps that you take from focusing on fundamentals, and even if they're not like perfect, are so much more significant than this, the jump that you would, maximal jump you could get if you nailed a marginal gain. And the other piece I think is really important is that if you don't pay attention to the fundamentals, your performance variability becomes like this. And it washes out, even if you nail a marginal gain, it washes out that marginal gain impact on your performance 
because you've created so much more variability in your performance. So I'll use sleep as an example. Like if you're not just forget about whether you get six and a half or seven hours of sleep or you're, you know, you're optimizing your sleep time and you're, 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 you're nailing it down. Perfect. If you're just not sleeping and you're getting four hours of sleep when really just get five hours of sleep or get five and a half hours of sleep, you're going to have better impacts on your performance than trying to be so specific about one little piece that might impact it at the end of the day. Yeah. And sleep was exactly the the term I was, um, I was thinking about when, when you were describing that, um, what, what heart rate should I go for? What type of whoop should I go for? You know, what, (laughs) what does this thing that's not measured very well, like oxygen saturation, what should I, what should that be when I haven't, you know, haven't even got a good bedtime routine, for example. And, and that comes down to, I think a really nice phrase, or it was a question actually, I think it was in your book. Um, can anyone be a high performer? And that, that struck me. There's a, there was a, a British politician that said that they wanted everyone to be above average and they were the education minister at the time, but everyone was just like, oh, you don't know how average works. <laughs> um, so it's That's not a about, statement. <laughs> we want everyone to be above average. Okay, we need some more people there. Um, so this isn't necessarily about that probability-wise, about skewing up. This is about you just just taking a meticulous and perhaps more diligent approach to being a little bit better than you are today. And what I got from the book as much as anything was these are a set of frameworks and a set of resources that you could cherry pick from as opposed to a how to how to build a car manual that that if something stands out that could be the core for physical, mental, tactical, technical if that could help you then fantastic. If reading that long list you think you know what, I, I used to have a growth mindset and I need to get back into that a little bit. Um, it, it struck me as an opportunity to, to use this as a set of ingredients for that metaphorical cake. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think one of the things I tried to really stress in the book, um, so I, I just to quickly, the reason I wrote the book was because people kept asking for perspectives on their own individual um, performances and what's the process I typically go through. Um, and that was really the genesis of the book. I mean, a long time ago, a couple of my mentors would say, you'll know, keep some notes on your lessons. It might be an interesting story at the end of the day. And, um, but the reason the book actually came out at the end of the day was to try to crystallize just the thought process of what I see when working with high performers and what's the approach. And then, but to write it in a way that was, digestible for people to apply it in their own context. And I think, um, and I hope it came across in the book, but I really tried to stress the importance of understanding your own context relative to your own objectives. Uh, and then what's the required output for you to be able to deliver that. Um, and so to your point there is that it's not saying do everything from A to B. It's like, in this situation, you might want to focus on X. If this means something to you, then connect with this. 
but take everything from this book and apply it to your context or take the aspects and the concepts around this book and apply it to your context. The one piece that I think I, I tried to stress around for everyone to think about when reading the book was really to, to if you get your mindset to think about performance as an output, not an outcome, you'll start to see how you can be a high performer in your own context. And I think that that's a really important piece because, Steve, even though our lives are completely parallel, your context is different than mine in, in many ways. Like we have a lot of similarities in what we've achieved and, and what we've done over our careers. But your context is different than mine. Um, we have different likes. We have different ultimately goals, I think, probably. Uh, but I can't sit there and say, oh, what did Steve do? I might learn from pieces of it. But these are the two or three things that I think really apply to my situation. And, and I mean, last couple of questions, um, Ben, I'd really just like to get your thoughts on a concept that you raised towards the end of the book, but I think it's quite important um, around auditing how you're getting on. And I'd yeah. just love to get your thoughts on when and how you might go go about that, depending on the obviously the goals and the context you, as you've just raised. But but that sense of just checking in as to how am I getting on? What are your sort of top tips for people, whether it's in sport or business? So I think um, it's a good question, and uh, I think it's an important one as well. Um, I when I think of auditing, I think of there's two re and I talk about these in the book. The two the two main things. If let's say you're doing something to improve your profile, let's say it's you're increasing your aerobic capacity. Well, it's important to understand if what you're doing is actually increasing your aerobic capacity. So are you doing the training? Are you getting a better aerobic capacity? Or are you actually maintaining it so you don't get the natural age decline? Whatever your situation is. But is the time and effort you're putting in actually having an impact on the, the attribute of performance that you want to change? Right? The second thing I'd say is that understanding how by improving your aerobic capacity, is that actually translating to your objective? So if my, if my objective is to have more energy to, you know, build my business and support my family and be competitive with my friends on my bike, is improving my road capacity actually increasing my ability and having an impact on my overall objective to achieve to achieve my objective and delivering my output to do that? So some of those ones are much more difficult to evaluate. And, and I think that's where measurement and evaluation are measurement. You can really clearly measure it. Evaluation, and I touch on this in the book, is you, know, you can audit from objective data, subjective data, which I think is really important when we're talking about personal performance, and some expert opinion. And expert opinion doesn't relate as much, it might relate as, let's say you're at your job and you're asking an expert in your field, am I doing these things well? That would be a subjective, objective, expert opinion. But I think we have to be comfortable to say self-evaluate subjectively because at the end of the day, your objective is your objective, right? An athlete, it's much easier to measure. We live in a world of measurement. But subjectively, is what I'm doing in my daily impact of trying to improve my road fitness, 
is it having an impact in my performance objective? And I think you, we have to be comfortable to just check in once in a while and not just get in the habit of doing and assuming it's actually having an impact. I think this is, to, to me, working in sport and collaborating or consulting in, in business, this is the one thing that I, I, I'm just so fascinated by that most people, most of the time, say, well, we did this, and then this was the outcome. And they forget the review, the performance bit, so that they change the process, yeah. alter that part. They, they've got this strange affiliation with the outcome. Did you land the deal? Did you win the gold medal? Did we did we do the process that we set out to do? Yes. Okay. Well, uh, I don't get it. Why that didn't result in it, as opposed to debriefing, reviewing, reflecting, yeah. and therefore, what are we going to do differently tomorrow? Um, and strangely, that we maybe it's because we are creatures of habit, and we like to just do the things that give us certainty, or they used to do, or it got us here. And it's strange how we don't include this review of output that allows us to review cleanly. Did the process actually support that? Did it, was it effective? And are we willing to take some risks and try something different? Yeah, for sure. And I think it, it goes both sides to that, right? So you talk about the moment when you don't get the objective you're trying to achieve, like, but you did everything. Well, there's also the times when you get the objective you tried to achieve, but you actually didn't do everything. Yes. So understanding those reasons, and, and I talk about this as like a good, a good coach inherently knows how to evaluate the lucky wins and the bad losses, right? And so they, 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 they look at those equally as important um, because, you know, and the debrief process is um, I would say it's one of the most valuable tools we use in sport um, when you do it properly. Uh, it, it can be a bit of a checkbox sometimes where people just go through it. Yeah, yeah, we did all that stuff. We got the result. But the question that you raise there is, did what we do actually improve our likelihood to get the result or did it just happen? Um, so what are the other things that, you know, we could have done everything we did, but you know what? The opponent came in really unprepared. They gave up a lot of mistakes. Um, we gave up a lot of chances. Uh, even though we did what we said we were going to, we gave up a lot of chances, but we just got lucky. Like they just missed the net 20 times. And um, you need to be able to do that debrief in a non-biased way that allows you to look at both those lucky wins and those unlucky losses the same way you might look at the, the good wins and the, the, you know, the, the losses that you really deserve to lose. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, look, um, last question for me. Um, wh what are you hoping the legacy of this book is? Great question. I think for me, um, the legacy would be great if, just to help people reframe um, performance as an output 
versus an outcome. And to help people understand that, you know, it's high performance isn't reserved only for the best of the best. It's actually attainable by every anyone, um, as long as they apply it to their own context. Uh, and I think that that's one thing I try to really drive home in the book is that um, there's you're in control of your ability to deliver an output. As long as you prepare yourself to deliver that output and you evaluate your performance against your ability to deliver that output, that you can be a high performer within the context of your own environment and your own goals and objectives. Fantastic. Brilliant. Well, look, congratulations on the book. I've really enjoyed reading Thanks. through it. And um, I know that a lot of people are going to find it extraordinarily useful. So, Ben, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, the output of this thank podcast, you, of course, is <laughs> I found a, a, a parallel uh, brother in another universe. So that's been amazing. So thanks so much, Ben. Absolutely, Steve. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure to spend time with you today. and uh, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I really hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Now we've got plenty more to come. So if you'd like to support and champion us, then take the time to subscribe and leave a review on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you tune in. You can also give us a follow on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. All the links are in the show notes. So in the meantime, have a great week. Music.